0: It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am really happy to introduce my next guest, Kellyanne Conway. You may know her from her work as a senior counselor to President Donald Trump. She was the first woman in American history to manage a successful presidential campaign and one that the conventional wisdom at the time said was unwinnable. She's gone back to her life as a consultant and a pollster, and I want to welcome Kellyanne Conway. Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Laura. I've been looking forward to this. Great. So congratulations on your new book, Here's the Deal. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list at number one, which is pretty good for a brand new book.
1: Well, it's especially good for a conservative woman. That doesn't happen every day. Yeah,
0: exactly, (laughs) exactly. So while I was reading the book, I actually listened to it on Audible. I realized you and I graduated high school the same year, 1985, so we sort of have the same frames of reference. But your get-up-and-go as an adolescent made me feel like a total teenage slacker in comparison. So what was it about your upbringing that gave you this incredible energy?
1: I doubt that you were a slacker. Look at you now. But (laughs) I— Okay, and I try to tell my own four teenagers this as well, Laura. My mom had plenty of fun. I had, you know, my own sports car. We were dating. We had lots of friends. We I played field hockey. You know, I had a very full life, but academics came first, mm-hmm. and family was always central to my life, as was my faith and freedom. And those, and I think that was really undergirded my ambition. In other words, I always had this curiosity, if not this hunger, to see what else was out there, never to escape the small town I grew up in, which I so love and still consider home in my heart, but really just to, to go beyond it and see what else and who else is out there. And that lust for adventure and that love of people and learning really compelled me to take a turn in my professional career that was unexpected and circuitous and outside of the law degree that I had earned and the four states in which I am admitted to practice law. And that is public opinion research, focus groups, polling. And, Laura, I know people, they saw me as Donald Trump's campaign manager, a counselor to the president. But don't forget, for decades before that, leading up to that moment, really, I had been traveling around this country talking to Americans in every nook and cranny, every city, town, and rural area, in focus groups, looking over the polling, pouring over the numbers, and really giving people an opportunity to tell someone who was then going to convey it to leaders, to corporate titans, to political leaders, to your representatives and other officials who make decisions that affect your lives. I was going to tell them what the people want. And it was such a glorious career to have had and now to have again for a very simple reason. You connected the people. We don't tell them what's important to them. They tell us. Right and it is the blessing of my professional life to have had that opportunity, that exposure to what a beautiful country filled with amazing people the United States of America truly is. And if you don't feel that way, you honestly shouldn't have these high level White House jobs.
0: You know, I find in the political discourse right now, and having just, you know, been a politician myself and now out of it, it is much less about listening to people than it is telling them. And I see this on both sides. I see it within both parties. This is how you should feel. This You should be outraged about this. You should be furious about that. But when you talk to actual people, you get a much different picture. And I think you get a much better government if consultants and politicians take more time actually listening to what it is that people want that's important to them. Laura,
1: some of the best ideas I've ever heard and conveyed to my clients have come right out of the mouths of the folks. Mm. And I mean, among the best, people have really thought these issues through. And it's not enough to just say inflation, gas, groceries, abortion, border. Those are sound bites. Actually, those are just words. Mm. And one of my pieces of advice, particularly to Republicans and conservatives right now, is finish your sentences. Make sure you're having a conversation with the public, a two-way conversation where you are listening and you are responding and reflecting and not just reacting and not just yelling and not just honestly throwing out these sound bites or even these words. So, for example, what started out as a conversation on gas and groceries, say, five, six months ago, Laura, has really metastasized into great fear and frustration among many of the voters and non-voters we're speaking with, that they're worried about insurance payments, utilities, the rent, the rent. And so many of these landlords in New York or Nassau County, New York, where you are, they were not allowed to charge rent for almost two years because of COVID. So they really are not in a position where they can allow for additional forbearance. And it's it's concerning to them because they want, you know, people are very worried, fastest to learn things like the fastest, one of the fastest growing new groups of homeless in our country are single moms who have a job. They're trying as hard as they can. They can't make ends meet. So, it's really just been an amazing journey, and listening is honestly the first step to leading. I can't say that enough to elected officials. And, and while we're on the topic, I see what's seeping into the conversation right now politically with just seven weeks to go till the midterm mm. election day, Lauren. It's this ridiculous fiction of electability. Mm. Who can win? Who can't win? You can win. You can't win. Oh, that's hopeless. So-and-so is outside the margin of error. Forget all that. The cognoscenti, the political cognoscenti, they ask who can win. Voters ask who can lead, and their definition of leadership is very different. Who can really turn this economy back around? Who can help me with my monthly bills and my annual challenges, you know, financially? Who can get us more security and safety? People feel insecure, unsafe in their neighborhoods, in their communities, in their own homes, in their schools. Who's going to really fight for kids in education two and a half years after we were not just masking them and teaching them CRT, both of which are, I'm but taken too far. But what about just screen time to school time, all the lost learning, all the mental health challenges, Mm. all the emotional challenges these kids are reporting now? So we have two different political parties in our system, and there's a bright line distinction as to what each of them are pulling forward. And I'm very happy to report because you said, you know, both parties need to listen better. It's true. And I'm happy to report that based on listening to Americans. Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are going to be putting out their commitment to America just this week. And it's in great contrast to the lies that are coming out of, frankly, the Biden White House at the border is secure. That's a lie. And that inflation is being reduced. That's a lie. And on and on. So I think there's a bright line contrast between the two parties. We voters are not single issue voters because we're not single issue thinkers. And ladies, that particularly applies to us. So all the women listening out there. Do not allow people to tell you that abortion is the only issue important to you. Don't allow Hispanics to hear immigration is the only issue important to them. That's just narrow casting. And why would we do that? We voters, especially we female voters, we throw a lot into our huge voter cauldron, images, issues,
0: ideas, impressions, and we stir it up and we make a choice. And women spend the most, make the most decisions about how medical money is spent, what kind of medical care their family gets. They make a lot of spending, a lot of money decisions, financial decisions in their families.
1: Well, yes, we are the chief healthcare officers of our household. We control women control roughly two out of every three healthcare dollars spent in this country. So, and we are disproportionately a majority of consumers, and we are disproportionately a majority of healthcare providers. Sure, half of the medical students and pharmacists, and but we're about 95 percent of the home healthy, which is a very fast-growing area of our healthcare delivery system. Laura, and women are also about 90 percent of the nurses. We're also about 60 percent of the insurance claim workers, and so you see women on both sides of the healthcare divide, and I don't mean divide in a negative way. The consumers and the providers divide. And so I think parties, and this is a big message I've been conveying to the Republican Party for decades now, but parties that ignore cultural realities and facts and figures like that, that women are the chief healthcare officers of their extended families and their households, they're doing that at their own risk. And I think even now, I don't hear healthcare as part of the conversation enough to match up with how much it is part of the conversation around our kitchen tables, there our cappuccino counters, their water coolers at work, and just the day-to-day fears and frustrations that people have you know when trump was running in 2016 and i was on six seven eight tv shows a day i talked a lot about health care because at that point obamacare really was failing and flailing for lots of americans and the actual insurers were fleeing the exchanges and so i'd be able to say "Well, today the left a few more markets here are the names of the markets here are the states here's the counties that now just have one you know one or two choices i'd Shopping the Soviet Safeway, no choice at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that Democrats have sort of abandoned the issue. And Republicans need to pick it up a little bit and show folks, show women in this country, show everybody, really, seniors, young people, 12 years after one of the biggest lies a president has ever told the U.S. population you can keep your plan, you can keep your doctor, and that everyone will get health insurance. None of which was true, all of which was false. You know, 12 years later, millions of Americans don't have health insurance. And it ends up being a big part of why they make the employment decisions they make as well. So this is something that we can't leave on the table. Hmm.
0: You know, it's interesting you talk about narrow casting. You know, women only care about one issue, Latinos only care about one issue. In fact, next episode, I'm talking to an actual Latino person about the Latino vote and where it's going and how this community is not a monolith at all. Culturally, generationally, there's so much nuance and diversity within the community. But how much do you think social media and sound bites and that whole sort of culture of, you know, the word to get the emotion? plays into this narrow casting and this sort of culture, this political culture of slicing and dicing humanity, real people, into these categories and then targeting certain issues towards them that they think they're going to care about. Because when you go out in the real world and you talk to real people, they're complicated. There's a lot going on in those brains and in those lives. You said it perfectly, Laura. I
1: really can't build on that any better. And it's true. And that goes back to our original piece of this conversation about listening better and then leading after listening. So if you're just going to look at Hispanics and say, oh, I think they care about immigration, so I'm going to talk to them this way, or I'm going to, talk, I'm going to take a really crappy deceptive ad in English and translate it into Spanish now. We have two crappy deceptive ads mm-hmm. in two different languages. Same thing, two different languages. That's not the way to reach them. Hispanic voters are aligning more and outlying more with the Republican Party and conservative philosophies these days for any number of reasons. One, in no particular order, obviously, is economic security, economic, upward mobility. Another one is education. They've always been strong education voters, but now you see the Latino Latina population being part of the concern, if not the urgency, among parents all across this country, Laura, where they're saying, wait a second, I'm the parent. I have a fundamental right to have a say in where my child goes to school and what is taught there. And they learn an awful lot about what is taught there and what is not taught there while they were listening to these kids on the kitchen islands posing as school classrooms during COVID. Also, they're about home ownership. They're about national security, border security. And sure, the Democrats were right that Hispanics care about border security and immigration. But guess what? They're wrong about which party they ally with that on that. They're not how can anybody be happy or content or not afraid by what they see happening at the border. You can't just, you cannot have two million people walking across a sovereign nation with unenforceable physical borders, and expect everybody to say that's just okay. Lots of folks, including the U.S. Hispanic population, saying, "Excuse me." Now the drugs are pouring in. Fentanyl is the number one killer of eighteen to forty-nine year olds in our country, and we're all trying to warn our kids and make them conversant with what that word means and what it could mean to them. God forbid. So I think they've really blown it with Hispanics. And, and the other part that doesn't get enough coverage is that many Hispanic households in this country are pro-life. And they are also for religious liberty. And they see in the Democratic Party abortion anyone, anytime, anywhere, no exceptions, all extreme. And they also are seem pretty hostile to religion these days. Listen to them once in a while. If you don't believe me, listen to them when people tell you who they are believe in the first time. Hmm. And the Democratic Party has become outwardly hostile toward religion.
0: You know, another community that's really finding its political voice right now is the Asian community, which, of course, is incredibly diverse. East Asian, South Asian. And, you know, in Nassau County, we've seen our Asian community grow more quickly than any other. And they're finding their voice and they're kind of up for grabs right now where they're going to go politically. Not that they're obviously everyone's going to go to the same place. But Issues of education are incredibly important to this community. Issues of taxation and protecting small business, incredibly important to this community as it becomes more financially secure, as, you know, the second and third generations begin, you know, really start to really succeed. What does your polling tell you about that particular community?
1: What our polling tells us about Asian Americans is like most Americans, they are concerned about rising crime, rising cost of living. And they also are education voters. They are small business owners, many of them by and large. And they also tend to live in all types of communities, rural areas, suburban areas, urban areas. But those in multi-generational households, particularly who emigrated here a while ago, were born here, are very concerned about all of what they see happening in our cities. These beloved, beautiful cities where many of them have chosen to live are really falling victim to these crazy liberal policies where they're ignoring Homelessness and a rise in crime and, and random violence and theft, and, and also just the degradation of our public school system. So there's great concern. And I just point out that a young Congresswoman Young Kim and Congresswoman Michelle Steele, two Korean American members of Congress who were, are now freshmen going for their second term in office this in seven short weeks, they've been dynamic leaders in trying to not just tell folks in Orange County where they, in California, where they are, but really all across the country, bringing along the Asian American communities and saying, hey, I'm an elected Republican congresswoman, female, you know, obviously Asian American. I'm mm-hmm. serving in the Republican Party because this is what the Republican Party believes. And if you believe it too, come aboard. And I have to give a big Party robust shout out to the Republican National Committee, the RNC, has done a fantastic job of, put it, of erecting these community centers. And the first one they opened ever was in Orange County, California, about a year and a half ago. But they are, they've got 40 of them all across this country. Why are they important? Well, they allowed the communities to people in the communities to just walk right in. And ask, what is this about? What does the Republican Party stand for? What's in it for me? How are you different from the Democratic Party? Who are the candidates? What's going on? It's so great to that you have that resource within your community. And this is going all over the place. But Asian Americans, you know, I did a big presentation in 1998. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a true story. This is 25 years ago, practically to the California Republicans. Uh, at the time, there were many more of them in the, in the House of Representatives. And David Dreyer at the time, who was leading them, a congressman in California, he said, "Kelly, you can talk about whatever you want. Do you want to do this? I said, let's talk about Asian Americans because I had noticed presidentially at the time, Laura, that they were a pretty reliable voting bloc for Republicans at the presidential level. Hmm. And it started to change a little bit beginning in 1992. I believe that George Herbert Walker Bush won them maybe just by single digits or so. Hmm. But by 2000, when his son won the presidency, George W. Bush, Al Gore actually slightly carried Asian Americans nationwide. And then ever since then, Bill Clinton's re-election, Bill Clinton. Uh, before that, George W. Bush's reelection, and then, of course, Barack Obama, et cetera. Asian-Americans have more allied themselves with the Democratic Party. And I think the Republicans are now saying, wait a second, either we took you for granted or we did a very poor job of reaching out to you and listening to you. Here we are now. Tell us your concerns.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that, because when I was county exec, we started for the very first time in Nassau County, the Office of Asian-American Affairs, And we did just that. We had these community days for seniors and we had food, we had entertainment and games and mahjong and all this fun stuff. And people really came. I mean, they were packed. People were looking for a place to come to meet their friends, you know, meet new people and just feel comfortable and also feel respected as a community. You know, the fact that government was acknowledging this community really meant a lot to them. And I think they found it very comforting. Sometimes just Love. showing up and providing a space for people is the easiest way to win trust to build relationships.
1: That's exactly right. You have to go where people are. You can't expect them to come to you. And I learned that in my political work over the decades, Laura. But I've really learned it on my consumer-centric work too. Hmm, yeah. If you want, you know, if you want people to come and use your service or try your product or Go beyond trying it, really become a committed consumer. You have to bring it to where they are, like physically and literally and also figuratively. And everybody knows that. That's marketing 101, but it's easy to forget in politics. And look, you've also just got to deliver. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I'm I struck by these polls. Yeah, I'm struck by these polls that show, you know, Fox News poll last week 38% say that. It says literally leaving apart the policies of the Biden administration. Do you think they're competent or not? And a year ago, 51 percent said they were competent. Now it's down to 38 percent. If you lose confidence in the competence Mm
0: -hmm. of
1: your government, of your leaders, of your White House, Mm -hmm. then you can scream about abortion and climate change and January 6th being the only date you ever see on the calendar forevermore. All you want and you're missing big Loss of America, because you are omitting from the conversation what they are talking about every single day and what's vexing and perplexing them. And they sometimes they want the government to get the heck out of the way, but they also expect the government to do certain things that at least would not interfere with their freedoms or put them in a better position to exercise their freedoms and be left alone as they're raising their kids, worshiping their gods and deciding what to do with their hard-earned money.
0: You know, it's interesting what you say about competence. I had a guest last week who talked about, you know, bumper sticker politicians who have the phrase, but not the operational underpinning to to back it up. And in the end, that hurts the cause. I mean, if you take something like climate change, I think we all want to go towards green. I think we all understand that it's important to preserve our beautiful resources as much as possible. But it's not like you can just flip the switch like, oh, yes, we're going to go green by this date. But you haven't put the infrastructure in place to actually make the transition and then if there are blackouts or crises, it makes your your whole platform look ridiculous. While it was good, and if it had the foundation of actual operations, it could be successful. But then it just, the whole thing just falls flat on its face. You lose the argument and potentially the election. Well, you do. And guess
1: what? I told you at the beginning of this conversation, Laura, something that I is a gift of my life professionally, but also that I tried to express in my book over and over again, and certainly in my service to the country as senior counsel, the president is this. You've got to see Americans as just beautiful people, an amazing country, the greatest democracy ever put on earth, but filled with a great deal of concern mm. and churn right now. People are nervous, they're fearful, they're uh, they feel unsafe, they feel that there's a lack of security, lack of everyday affordability. But you can't assuage that by just attacking the other side and cordoning, you know, vomiting sound bites. You've got to come up with policy prescriptions. Do you know why? Because A, this country deserves it, but B, they're, they're on to you. If you're not giving them the specifics and the solutions, they'll see it right away. People, and they will reject you. They're people are not the stupid. And the solution. They're not That's stupid. Right. And I think people are very smart. There's an essential wisdom in Americans, as I said earlier, and I just have loved and continue to love listening to folks. And, you know, um, somebody said in focus groups last week, uh, two weeks ago, excuse me, we are out doing focus groups in a couple of cities, and it really struck me. We kept hearing Listen, I just want you to have a plan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a perfect plan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be even a complete plan. I just want to know that you hear me and that you see me and that you've got a plan. And I thought, wow, isn't that so simple? We had to do focus groups to hear that, but we had to do focus groups to hear that. Bring back those clips to the powers that be and say, there it is. This is perfectly said. And what she said in suburban Philadelphia is being said all over Hmm. this country every single moment.
0: You know, political ads are starting to pop up on everyone's TVs right now, and they're full of these dystopian images, this darkness, this fear, this anger. Is this what really moves the needle in American politics?
1: No, I think it does grab the imagination and the anger of a certain segment of the electorate that is not left or right. Believe me, it's not just red or blue. It's not so simple. It's everybody. But I don't think that's the way that you, I don't think that's the way that you engage most people, why would you enrage people to engage people? I think that's the real question. Hmm, I like and I that. see a lot of outrage politics, Laura, and I see some people thinking that they're, you know, it's just playing gotcha or getting clicks and kicks. And really, that's a sugar high
0: mm-hmm. for that
1: one individual, usually mm-hmm. in a safe feed, or usually some stuffy anchor or usually, you know, somebody sitting on their ass on Twitter all day. <laughs> my, but seriously, and so, but I think for the, not I think, but I know. For the vast majority of Americans, they want to have a meaningful and civil conversation about the issues at hand. And this is always my message to conservatives and Republicans. Look, you're duty bound and also you're in an amazing position to be the ambassador for the message of freedom. And here's why people will look at you and they'll say, hey, I like you. But more importantly, they will say you're like me. Mm-hmm. And that you're like me, connected tissue is how we bring mm-hmm. more people along. And I tell folks all the time, I'll say it in a speech tonight and another one tomorrow night, that, look, uh, people are hungering for this message now. There's a lot of confusion about what party stands for what, even though there's never been so much such a bright line distinction. Does my vote really count? Aren't all politicians the same? Right. Isn't Washington completely vested in inertia,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not results? And so it's up to you to say, hey. If you say you hate politics, you know what I say to you? I can understand that. Mm-hmm. You said you didn't like all of Donald Trump's tweets. Great. You don't like all this about Biden. Terrific. Or you think Biden does a good job. At... Terrific. But let me peel it back and really just show you the difference in inflation under Biden and Trump, energy independence, Biden and Trump, cost of living, Biden and Trump, border security, Biden and Trump, Putin, and whether he's invaded a sovereign nation or not under Biden and Trump. And the list goes on and on. And I think people are hungering for this message, even people you think are not, those undercover, hidden, conservative and Republican-leaning voters who don't pontificate and protest as a group, but vote as individuals, which is most of America. So I still think you get people through honey and not vinegar, mm-hmm. by and large, mm-hmm. but you have to be willing to take the first step and have a civil conversation that's substantive,
0: and I would recommend the same thing to Democratic candidates. You know, meet people where they are, listen to yeah. what it is that's interesting to them, and then give them actual solutions. And that connective tissue is incredibly important. Just being real, being yourself, and that that's what helps to build, I think, help to build the trust back because so much of it is lost. So you have sashayed your way into so many lion's dens, especially male-dominated lion's dens, campaign life, White House life, and really you don't pull any punches in the book, which is, is such a fun read. Media, social media, you know, all while trying to run a government, raise a family, and I think everyone can relate to that feeling when they wake up panicked in the morning. They have a presentation at work, or they have a job interview, or they have to have a difficult conversation with, with someone. How did you keep your parasympathetic nervous system calm? How did you train yourself <laughs> to stay calm so that you could wake up in the morning, not have a nervous breakdown, but actually go in and handle you know all of the men's messes or you know the snafu of the day or the big crisis that was looming? What do you tell yourself to stay calm, stay focused, and get it done. Well, I appreciate all that. First and foremost, people will
1: listen and learn if you are calm and civil yeah. more than, you know, screaming or just insulting, which is why I don't understand how an entire, you know, I just don't understand how an entire country, half of a country was insulted and not inspired by President Biden recently in Philadelphia. That was a terrible moment for his presidency and for this nation. And so that's number one. People will listen and also people end up looking toward you to give them information, facts and figures, just knowledge that they otherwise may not have access to. So if every sure, so the sure the mainstream media is biased. To the, sure they're liberal, that's obvious. But you know what else they suffer from, Lauren? Hmm. Sameness. They all say the same darn thing yeah. all day long. They run it twenty four seven and they dare call it breaking news, which by definition it can't be breaking news. Yeah. If You just said it to me (laughs) 24-7. So I think the counterpunch to that is to make sure that what is omitted from the conversation is included in what I'm trying to convey to the public. And I felt that Donald Trump presided over what I call the democratization of information, where whether it was through a presidential tweet or a presidential spokesman, a spokesperson like me, going out there and making sure that everybody had instantly and free of charge that information that they otherwise were being starved of, or they otherwise would no. even to this moment people say you know what I didn't know that why didn't we hear more about that that's unbelievable and you show them like the government report you show them the statistics from a nonpartisan, and you show them the facts and like I how come nobody ever told me how come you didn't know that? I sat next to someone that did a very successful person at, at a dinner last week who said that to me and it was just funny to me because he's a very smart very successful and well-read guy but if it's not there for him to read, it doesn't matter how well read he is. Hmm. So that's number two. Number three, and most importantly, I don't let people define me. Hmm. There are a lot of haters and naysayers and critics out there, a lot of folks trying to break my stride, break mm-hmm. my heart, frankly, mm-hmm. break me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I just won't let them. Have you seen these people? They are not worth me yeah. having the, quote, nervous breakdown you mentioned or even losing my stride. And I was naive at the very beginning of my White House tenure. I write about this in my memoir. Here's the deal. Pick it up, everybody. Also, the audiobook is great. It's a lot of Kelly and 20 hours of me. But <laughs> pick it up because I do talk now. And you go there. I mean,
0: you go there on everything. I
1: go there. I go there, Laura. It's not one of these fluff and puff things. Mm-mm. It's not one of these I was so great. You know, it's got a lot of humility, mm-hmm. not hubris. But I say this to you in answer to the question about how did I get out there and just do it because, you know, the anchors. Are never my audience. The people are always my audience. Mm. And I even tell my own teenage daughters, if not my son and other people's kids, no one can make you feel badly without your permission. And so far, I'm not granting it to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know who you are. You know what you're capable of. Love. You know what your job is to do. And I could sort of roll my eyes or cry or scream and say, This is unfair. You're so unfair to me. But I was naive at the beginning. My famous line at the beginning of the uh, Trump White House and the administration was, oh, the mainstream media and the Trump administration will have joint custody, shared joint custody of the country for the next four to eight years. So let's just find a responsible way to co-parent. <laughs> turns out they were just deadbeat dads. You know, They're just deadbeat dads. So there was really no way to do that. And it's been remarkable to see, because remember, and people say, oh, you know, how can this one treat you that way and that one treated you that way? And Stocky and Jean-Pierre can just lie from the podium. Listen, Apart from the fact that the media, by and large, did not vote for Donald Trump and did not want him to be president, I believe the answer lies in the fact that they did not expect him to be president. So think about if your entire job is to tell people what's happening, who's going to win, what it means for them. And you did your job so terribly, so incompetently that you never saw Trump coming. You were absolutely confident Hillary's going to win. You had friends who were going to be in her cabinet already buying houses in D.C. Believe right. you me, folks, because I looked at one of their houses when I moved to D.C. Mm. And they had already bought it, had to unload it. I say this, to you because it's the embarrassment and humiliation and just sheer shock and surprise factor of all of it that I think really, you know, nested into people's brains. And they just never forgave us for that. They never forgave us. And I mm. was naive because they had no interest in co-pairing. They had interest in Russia collusion mm. and impeaching President Trump. And the SDNY and the porn people and all this nonsense that really got, amounted to absolutely nothing porn and absolutely, people, like amounted that. to absolutely nothing in terms of getting rid of President Trump. It amounted to absolutely nothing in terms of the American people. Nothing good came of that.
0: Hmm. Kellyanne, I want to thank you so much for this frank conversation. When I finished your book, I thought of my grandma, Bessie. Because some people were like, said to me, oh, why are you reading her book? Or why are you going to have her on your podcast? And my grandma Bessie, when people would criticize public figures, she would always quietly say, well, if you'd read her book, you'd know. <laughs> so, right. Well, they
1: don't want to read the book. They don't want to say the same reason. They just want to look at sound bites and make other people famous. Yeah. But guess what? The book is out there. So many people have read it and commented to me, including people who didn't vote for President Trump or who didn't much like me when I was in the White House. And right. They will say, you know. I look at this a little bit differently now. And part of why I wrote the book also is because people always want to know the story behind the story. But also, Laura, I had people speaking for me and about me Mm -hmm. for a very long time. So it's time that I spoke for myself now that I'm out of government and can do that with more comfort. And that's why I did it. But I do go there on many things, on many different levels. And to to just finish where we started, you said something very important at the beginning of this podcast, Laura, to me. And you said something about people are complicated you know what people are complicated mm-hmm. but their ideas are very simple <laughs> what they what they need and what they're asking for is very straightforward very transparent very plain and it's high time that people who want to serve and want to hold political office, which is a privilege, not a right, absolutely start respecting how complicated we is, as individuals are and start respecting and heeding and responding to and implementing our very simple ideas. Mm-hmm. So thank you for having me.
0: I appreciate your time. I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: And Laura, thank you for your service in Nassau County. It thank you. A huge
0: thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.